Uh, well, this morning we are continuing our Advent series, uh, He Shall Be Called, where we've been looking at the names given to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9 and uh, trying to get a better understanding of who Jesus is, uh, who it is that we serve and why we should give our lives to Him and how that impacts us. But uh, this morning I just want to start with a fairly rhetorical question, just to gauge where everyone's at here. Uh, so how many of you would say that you could use some more peace in your life? Maybe a couple of you, I'm sure. Um, we're, we're just a week away from Christmas, and those of you who don't have presents, I'm sure, could use some more peace at this point. But oftentimes, this season is filled with the rush of gift purchasing, of, of preparing for guests, of, of making meals, uh, and all the things that entail with coming and going. And it can be a very full season. But I think that even outside of this, life often feels rushed. So... Peace is often eluding us, yet something we so desperately search for and long for in life. So, wouldn't it actually be great to feel at peace in our lives? To feel complete peace? Right? Not partial, but to, to close your eyes, to, to be alone with your thoughts, and to not be hurried or stretched in your mind, to feel calm and at rest. Right? Not to react to the difficulties that are thrown at you, but to respond to them with serenity, knowing that God is in control of every situation and that he can work good through even the most difficult times. That's the peace that our Jesus came to bring. He is our Prince of Peace. Uh, so this morning, we're going to look at the significance of the title, Prince of Peace. Uh, and we're going to look at why we need this peace and what that peace looks like in our lives today. So... Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. We're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 9. We'll read a couple verses there, and then we'll skip over to Isaiah chapter 57. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Uh, we'll skip over to Isaiah chapter 57, a few chapters ahead there. Uh, just to give some frame of reference for these next verses, this is in the midst of Israel, the, God's people, the nation that he's uh, speaking to, um, in the midst of their sin. So God is speaking these words to them in the midst of their brokenness and their wandering away from him. Isaiah 57, uh, verse 17 to 21. I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger, yet he kept on his willful ways. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace. Peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Jesus is our Prince of Peace. Uh, if you look up peace in the English dictionary, uh, it's often described as a freedom from disturbance or war. Uh, peace is, is rather a lack of turmoil or difficulties in our lives, right? Uh, but throughout the Old Testament, the word used for peace is shalom. 
I'm sure some of you have heard that before. It's the Hebrew word for peace, and it entailed more than just a simple freedom from war or, or peace from their enemies, right? Uh, but it actually meant a wholeness, a completeness in life, one where your whole being was complete and not lacking anything. Uh, in, in the book of Joshua, shalom is used with regards to a stone, uh, one that's whole and complete, not having any cracks or breaks in it. Um, and it was, it was this wholeness in your being, this shalom, that every part is working as it should or as it ought in this world, a state of well-being for, that comes from your life being complete and made whole, not lacking or missing anything. Right, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I'm sure a lot of us would like that in our own lives. But shalom was supposed to be what the kings of Israel were to bring to the nation of Israel as they led God's people in righteousness. Uh, they, would, they would bring shalom to the people, but more often than not, they failed. Right? If you read through the Old Testament, some of the um, some of the books of the kings, they, they often were corrupt. They continually failed, and they, they would lose their shalom because of this. Right? They were invaded by their enemies. They were given famine and plagues, uh, and they were ruled over by their enemies because they turned their ways from God. And so it's in the midst of this that Isaiah speaks that promise. As God's people are running away from him, God speaks through Isaiah and says this promise that we just read, that one day there would come a Messiah, a Prince of Peace, one who would heal what was broken in the world, one who would, who would make all things right, who would bring a wholeness to the brokenness in the world that we lost through our sin. And I'm sure you notice, but in Isaiah 9, it's filled with political language, right? Um, Jesus is the prince. The government will be upon his shoulders. The greatness of his government and peace, there is no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Right? The title for prince used here isn't just a, uh, a title given to a relation to royalty. It was, it was a title that meant a leader, someone who was in charge over the people that would direct them and guide them. So when God's people heard this promise that one day there would be a prince who would bring peace to the nation... They expected him to look a lot different than what Jesus came as. Right? They thought he would come as a powerful leader, a tyrant who would wipe out Israel's enemies and overthrow the current government and put Israel in charge. That's kind of their expectations at the time. Because it was only when, when God's people were free of their enemies that they could truly experience shalom, that they could experience peace. Right? When a righteous government took charge and ruled over the kingdom in righteousness. But 1 John tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. He didn't come to destroy the evil people, but he came to destroy the evil that had a hold over people. But that's not really what God's people wanted. And I, I would argue that it's probably not what we want either most of the time. Right? The Israelites, they wanted God to change their situation. They wanted him to come in, wipe out their enemies, and place them in charge. Right? They wanted to be in control over their enemies. They wanted to be the authority, to have autonomy over their enemies. And I think that we get caught up in this, this control mentality as well, right? That if, if the world were just set right according to the way we think it would be, then it would truly be a place of peace. If we had control over life, it would be satisfying. Even not the whole world, but even our own lives, right? If, if, if the political leader that we want were to be in charge, then life would be satisfying, right? Our nation would be happy. Or if, or if maybe we had the right relationship, 
If you found the right spouse, then your life could be at peace. If you ate all the right food, got all the right exercise, then you could truly experience shalom. But our desires to find peace and control over our own lives is actually what led us into this mess in the first place. Right? Sin was brought into this world because Adam and Eve thought choosing their own way was better than choosing God's way. Right? Yet Jesus brings us peace, but only if we know him as our prince. It can be a challenge for us to understand what that even means. Right? We've lived most of our lives, I'm sure, in democracy, where each of us have an equal vote to who is in charge. But if you look back in history, kings were off the dictators. They completely ruled. You obeyed the king's laws. Otherwise, you could be punished. You could be killed. Right? They were feared. If you disobeyed even the smallest of the king's laws, then he could wipe out your entire family and there was nothing anyone could do to stand against it, right? If, if you were to treat the king with only a partial submission, then chances are you wouldn't live very long in this kingdom. And yet Jesus, as our Prince of Peace, asks us to submit ourselves completely to him, right? To get up every single day, to die to ourselves, our own selfish desires, our wants and our lusts, and instead choose to live for God. When we come to Jesus only when we need him and never really submitting our lives to him, but just treating him as a vending machine that we can go to when we need something, but hardly ever allowing ourselves to come under his control, then we'll hardly experience his peace. It's only in the entrusting of our lives to the Prince of Peace that we experience shalom in our lives. We can trust in his word. We can obey as he calls us to love others well. And I don't want to minimize how terrifying submission is. I don't want to minimize how absolutely scary it is to let go of control of our own lives and to give that to Jesus, right? To surrender the ways we've tried to find peace and failed. But it's only this way that we can truly experience shalom in our lives, a wholeness, a completeness to it. It is hard to let go, but it's the only way. 1 John 5, verses 3 and 4 says, This is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Did you hear that? His commands are not burdensome. Following him isn't a burden to our souls, it's a blessing. It's not that we're called to go climb Mount Everest or earn a billion dollars, right? Scripture says that his commands are not burdensome. They bring life, they bring peace to us as we live in obedience to our loving Father. You know what is burdensome? Controlling our own lives. Trying to look after every little piece of detail in our lives, making sure we're following in every perfect way. Which is ironic because we're in actually control of so very little of our own lives, right? We can't control anything. We can hardly control whether or not we get sick. God does. We can't avoid death. We can't control the weather, right? We have a hard enough time controlling our own thoughts and the words that we speak. Yet when we are obedient to God, we experience shalom. Not when we're finally in control of all the little pieces of our lives, but when we give those up to Jesus. But that's the lie of our enemy. That's the way he works in our lives. Right? That if only we had control, then we could experience peace. If only life went the way that I think it should go, then I will truly experience shalom. I mean, that's what he told Adam and Eve right in the garden, and it's what he tells us today. The point or the goal of our enemy is to try and take away our shalom. Because he realizes that if 
he can take away our peace, then we will do the rest. If he causes us to believe that we have a reason to be anxious or afraid, and if we fall into anxiousness and fear, then we will make bad decisions based on these things that lead us away from God. But this isn't where we're left, right? Our enemy is overcome. That's the great reason we have to rejoice in our loving Father. First John tells us the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And yes, we will experience troubles in this world. We will go through pain and heartache, but we can take heart for our Savior has overcome the enemy of this world. The only power the enemy has in our lives is the words he speaks. He speaks lies. John 8 says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and a father of lies. He accuses us of sin that Jesus has paid for. Right? He tells us what we think we need in order to have shalom and encourages us to pursue that. And our enemy tells us lies mixed with a little bit of truth so it's a little more believable. He's trying to coerce us into making bad decisions. But in the end, he can't do anything without God's permission. That's the good news, right? In, in the book of Job, we catch a glimpse of this interaction, the way that the devil interacts with God and the power that we understand from this is incredible. I'll just read you a little excerpt from one of Satan's conversations with, God's in the, in God, with God in the book of Job. Uh, Satan says, You have blessed the work of Job's hands so that his flocks and herd, herds are spread throughout the land, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and surely he will curse you to his face, to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Very well, then everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Right? If our enemy wants to actually do any type of damage to us in this life, he has to ask permission from God. Do you see the, the goodness even within that, that our enemy cannot overcome us, but even the difficulties that we face, he must go to God to allow those things to happen. And no matter what God allows to happen, we can also trust that he will work it out for good. Right? Romans 8.28 says that God works good, all things together for the good of those who love him. If we make Jesus our prince of peace, if we submit our lives to him, even the suffering, even the pain and difficulties that we face in this life can be returned for good, can be used for good in our own lives. There's nothing that can overcome that. Yes, there will be times when we forget that God is stronger than our enemy. That's where we need to remind ourselves of what's written in the, in the Bible, the truth of who our God is in these times. We need to turn back to Scripture when our enemies are speaking lies to us to find truth. But in order to experience uh, this shalom that God offers us, we first need to see the reason why we need this peace in our lives. And there are many good things happening in the world around us today, uh, but I think that no one would really argue with me if I were to say that it's a pretty broken place, right? I think that when we look to the world, it's easy to agree that there's a lot of problems and a lot of them are going on unsolved. And it's easy to recognize some vague problem with humanity, but do you see the problem within yourself? A number of years ago, a, a Times Magazine published an article and asked a, a very simple yet profound question. And, and they simply asked people, what is wrong with the world? And they encouraged people to write in their answers. And they collected works from thinkers all over uh, Europe at the time. And one response from G.K. Chesterton came in. He was a famous Christian, and writer, uh, Christian writer and thinker. And he simply wrote this, 
Dear Sir, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. You can't know the peace of Jesus unless you first realize the true reason you need peace. To first recognize within yourself the great brokenness that only Jesus can fix. Right? The great brokenness that has contributed to the state of this world as we see it now. The problem isn't with the world, the problem is with me. My desire to control my own life, to be selfish with my resources, to walk over top of others in, in benefit of myself. And unless you see that it's not just something that's wrong with the world, but it's something that's wrong within me, then you won't experience shalom. If you think that what's wrong with the world is only out there, just some vague place outside of ourselves, then God's peace will be elusive. It'll always be out of reach. True shalom can only come into our lives when we first acknowledge our need for his peace, that we are broken and in need of fixing. Not to hide our problems, not to blame them on other people, but to run to the Savior with our honesty. 1 John chapter 1 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you see the great promise there is in that? Do we see our, our brokenness within our own lives enough to run to the Savior? Or do we believe the lie of the enemy, that, that God can't forgive what we've done? Or, or maybe that we don't really need to be forgiven for what we've done? The Prince of Peace came to bring the peace with God, to right the wrongs that we have caused in this world, and to restore a relationship that we broke so that we can experience shalom again in this world and have hope as well. And we need this because we've all sinned. There's not a single one of us who's a little bit better than everyone else. We're all on the same plane here. All of us have made mistakes. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And we all need his peace because we've all sinned. And the depth to which we understand how broken we are is the depth to which we understand God's great love for us. The more we see how much Jesus saved us from, the better our shalom, the greater our joy, knowing just how helpless we were without Jesus. It's like this. Let's say that you were to take a trip for a few months, and as you're away, wherever you're traveling, vacation, uh, you ask a friend to take care of your place. And as they're looking after your house, you know, they do the shoveling, they check on the mail, they make sure the place isn't flooded, it's stuff like that. Um, and, and one day your friend's collecting the mail for you, and as they do, they notice there's a bill inside. And so they, they open up the bill, and they see that it's gone unpaid, and so they decide to pay it for you. And I'm realizing most of you are like, can I get this person to look after my place next time I'm away? Um, but let's say that the, the next time you called up this friend, they told you what they did, and you're asking, you know, how's my house, how's everything doing? And as, as you're talking with them, they, they just casually mention that they paid a bill for you. And I think that most of us here, if we were to hear that, our reaction would be probably a little embarrassed at first, like, oh, you didn't need to do that, like, oh, come on. Uh, but I think we would all be thankful to some degree, right? We might say, oh, you didn't have to do that, but in the end, we would still be grateful for them helping us out, uh, going above and beyond, right? We'd thank them, we'd be happy, appreciate their help. But our, our reaction would be based on the expectation that they paid a cell phone bill or a utility bill or something like that, right? Uh, but 
Let's say that as your friend was talking to you and as they told you that they paid a bill of yours, you thanked them profoundly. And then afterwards, let's say that they shared with you that it was your mortgage that they ended up paying, the unpaid bill. So it wasn't just, you know, a couple hundred dollars here or there. It was thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Your reaction would be quite different. Some of us might cry in, in happiness, right? Uh, others might just be embarrassed but thankful. But either way, you wouldn't be unaffected. And I think that many people have understood the gospel much like the first bill being paid, that a friend is taking care of our mess, right? That, that it's nice, it's pleasant, and, and it's kind of it's great, but we're unaffected by it because we don't really understand the true cost. Because in reality, the bill that Jesus has paid for us isn't something that we could ever earn in a lifetime. It's not something that we could collectively work together towards even. Every single one of us has sinned in this life. We're all in the same boat. We all fall short of God's glory. Whether you've, whether you've never sworn in your life or you've murdered people, whether you've tried to be the good Christian your entire life or you've done everything but that, he's died for you and for me. And so all of us either spend the entirety of our lives trying to pursue shalom in Jesus or trying to pursue peace in substitutes that don't really work. We all need shalom. So some of us come up with a worldview that says we've done nothing wrong. It doesn't matter where we try to find peace, but if we find it apart from Jesus, it's only a cheap substitute. It doesn't last. It's only partial, transient, unobtainable. In the end, each of us only has a debt that Jesus can pay, and it takes a great amount of humility to bring ourselves to Jesus asking for forgiveness. But in doing so, we find shalom. And the love of God has for us is so great that every single time that we come to him and acknowledge our sin and ask for help, he lovingly accepts us and cleans us up. So every single one of us needs shalom. We need the prince to bring us peace. So what does that look like in our lives? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what it does and what it doesn't look like. Because uh, first of all, it doesn't look like having perfect circumstances before you can experience peace. I want to make that quite clear. Um, remember that Jesus promised us suffering and pain in this world, yet we should take heart knowing he has overcome the difficulties and the world. God won't take us out of every hard experience in life. He won't save us from every trial, but promises that no trial, no difficulty can take us away from him. That he has overcome the world. Nothing can take away the joy that we have in Jesus, regardless of the challenges we face, whether we've caused the problems ourselves or whether they're caused from other people. Jesus promises to be with us, to help us have shalom, regardless of what is happening in life. Even if, even if the sickness seems to be taking over, even when we lose those closest to us, and our lives fall apart, there is victory knowing that no thing can take our peace, our hope, and our joy away from us in Jesus. So this shalom doesn't look like having perfect circumstances. It's something that can be experienced in the midst of difficulties. It's overcoming through perspective, not power. And second, the shalom in our lives looks like hope and joy. When Jesus was born into this world, the book of Luke tells us that um, an army of angels appeared before a group of shepherds and proclaimed, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. In, in Revelation 5, we get another glimpse of the praise that is due our wonderful Savior. 
And it says that the lamb that was slain, Jesus, was surrounded by thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 angels, all singing in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. If the, if the angels in heaven can rejoice, not, and they're not the ones who are benefited directly by his sacrifice that Jesus made for your and my sin, but if they can rejoice in the great peace that was brought to the world through Jesus, how much more reason do we have to rejoice, knowing we are the recipients of his peace and his joy and his love? Not only that, but he's given us great hope. Right? We've been promised everlasting life as part of the peace between us and God that Jesus made. We no longer have to be afraid of death because righteous man chose to die for the unrighteous and took our punishment of being separated from God upon himself. Isaiah 12 says that surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. The joy we have in everlasting life in Jesus is one that cannot be taken away from us. Right? That cannot be minimized by our sin or stolen away by our enemy. And many people fear death because it's the loss of all things. But for a Christian, death is the beginning of all things. For us, death marks the beginning of life. It's the trading of all of our ragged clothes, all of our dirt-stained, sin-covered rags for new clothing that cannot be maimed or stained. As C.S. Lewis put it, there are far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Do you see the great hope and joy to which we've been called? So as we close, I, I, I just want to encourage you to take some time over this Christmas season to reflect on the hope and the joy that you have in Jesus. I think as we go throughout the season, it's often easy to make it just a kind of old tradition that we don't really understand the significance of sometimes. Uh, so I'd encourage you to find some time over the next couple weeks. Read the book of 1 John. Uh, it's an amazing little book where he, he just explains really well some of the great promises that we have in Jesus and the truth of uh, the fact that we cannot be overcome through our enemy. And if you haven't made Jesus your prince, if you haven't submitted to your life to him, what are you waiting for? Right? The Bible tells us he stands at the door and knocks. You can't scare him away. You can only reject him. He loves you and he's waiting for you. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for your great faithfulness that in the midst of our sin, our brokenness, God, in our mess, you stepped in and made a difference. You made peace with us and the Father again. We thank you that we have every reason to have peace, to have hope, to have joy. Father, sometimes they seem so elusive and we, we get caught up in this season. So we just ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy to turn quickly back to you in the times where we're caught up in the mess. Father, we ask for minds willing to accept and understand your love in greater ways. And we ask for your peace, God, that as we submit ourselves to you, that we might find joy and peace in you. But Father, it's difficult. We ask for your help. Even today, we ask that we might lay ourselves at your feet and follow in the ways that you've called us to. But Father, we thank you that in you we have a victory that no enemy can overcome in this life. So we thank you for your great love and your great goodness towards us, Jesus. In your name, amen.